Hello and welcome to Cutting In From The Left. I'm your host, Tom Wise, and I've got with me my trusty amigo, Luis Antonio Streeter. How are you doing, mate? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I'm doing well. Great to be back. It's been a bit of a hiatus for us, but you know, I hope we get things restarted again a little bit and um, see if people are still eager to hear our thoughts or not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's worth a go. Sort of did that season preview, which was probably one of our best ones. And then you were moving and I was moving and, you know, things just sort of, we got busy. So, but we're back now and we're ready to talk some serious football. On today's episode, I was thinking we can look back at the Premier League action, focusing on Liverpool's Merseyside derby win before going off to Spain and checking on the title race there, going to Syria and Italy for our attention to an article in The Guardian from Jonathan Wilson in which he is pretty much lambasting the whole of European football and how we were all very up, up in arms about the Super League last summer but in reality we're already well down that path but we'll come to that. We'll start in the Premier League. We were together for this game, the Merseyside derby on Sunday. Liverpool 2, Everton 0. There was a Johnny Lou article in which he said that Everton did exactly what they meant to do on Sunday. They, they played their game plan to a T and they still got comfortably beaten. It wasn't, it wasn't a good look for them, was it? I think they're in deep, deep trouble now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, the most credit I'm willing to give Frank Lampard and Everton is that they did stifle us, uh, stifle Liverpool in the first half. I think that is true that it was kind of down to, to their game plan a little bit as well. But I mean, the quality just wasn't there for them to kind of press so many kind of advantages off the back of that or even sort of counter and try to um, sort of make a goal or two. It just didn't seem like they were interested in it either. I think they had 17% possession in the end. It, you know, it was a very um, a negative performance. It kind of marred afterwards in terms of a lot of complaints about the officials. I think, to be honest, both sides are probably justified in having one or two gripes and it probably evened out a little bit in the end. Um, I don't think the standard of officiating is one of those things that's kind of determined by club bias. I think it's just that the referees in the Premier League could honestly be quite a lot better, um, even with kind of VAR in place. I mean, on, on reflection, it's kind of a fair result. Ivar Karigi doing what he does best, coming on, tormenting Everton. So, yeah, I mean, it's not too much more to say about that game, really. Both sides were sort of expecting that result. Um, and I think we're kind of moving on afterwards to, to see the more important games in the sense that the outcome is a little bit less certain. Um, I think Everton will be looking at, for instance, you know, upcoming game against Watford. And that's a game that they really need to win. I think people have been saying for a little while that with Everton's run of fixtures, it's looking like they might not win one, one more game before the end of the season. This was definitely one of the games you wouldn't have had them down to get anything from. I think it sort of shows that the most memorable for me thing after watching it live on TV, watching it on uh, Match of the Day 2, the most memorable thing was all about Anthony Gordon and whether he should have got one or two penalties or none or no penalties. Potentially a bit unlucky with the Matip one, I'm not really sure. Like you say, there was decisions either way that could have could have changed. But yeah, they, they were disappointing. Liverpool, like you say, is good, good without being outstanding. They're just doing what they need to do. Matching City, it's going to go straight down to the wire, the title race. I don't know about you, but I've got a feeling it's going to be very similar to the 18-19 season in which both City both and Liverpool play out of their skin. 
but in the end, City just do it because they were ahead to start with. Yeah, it's hard to see Man City dropping points from this position, to be honest. They are a very efficient, ruthless team when they need to be. And I think that they'll have enough in the tank left to, to be able to see that off, to be honest. You know, we'll see, I think, definitely still kind of up in the air. We can move on to the City game. That was very, very easy, strolling the park for them, beating Watford 5-1. The match of the day said it was the first time that a team, an English team had beaten another English team 15 times in a row. It's looking pretty gloomy for Watford as it is for Norwich, who got absolutely destroyed by Newcastle at home 3-0. I think both the yellow teams will be taking a season in the Championship to think about what they've done this year because neither of them have exactly set the world alight. If we say them to a down, obviously Burnley can still get out of trouble. They had a great result uh, beating Wolves on Sunday. So that will keep it exciting until the end. And then last night... We had Leeds United drawing with Crystal Palace. Uh, there's a few people that think that Leeds is potentially still in trouble. They are five points off from Everton in 18th, Leeds are in 16th. Uh, thing is, I can't really say Leeds are in trouble because I don't think Everton are going to make up. I don't think Everton are going to win two games, really. <laughs> that's, that's what sort of thing. I think Leeds are going to survive just because the others are so crap. Do you think there's a chance Leeds could go down or do you think they're safe now that they've I don't really there? think so. I mean... You'd say probably one more result seals it for them. Yeah. Um, and you've got to say, I mean, you know, maybe if Man City put a few goals past them in this next game, it gives them a bit of a confidence knock and they can't buy a point the rest of the season. But I think they'll be all right. focus on Spain and this weekend Real Madrid found themselves without a league fixture they last played against Osasuna uh, during last week winning 3-1 away from home despite Benzema having the season of his life he actually managed to miss two penalties in seven minutes in this game which is quite <laughs> quite an interesting stat uh, but as I say they, they went on to win 3-1 uh, Barcelona uh, stutters again after their point in Xavi and going on a good run at the start of 2022 they've now lost I think it's three of the last four games or competitions since they lost to Frankfurt they lost at the weekend to Rayo Vallecano it, you know we all have a soft spot for Rayo Vallecano that was a that was a good result because that pretty much guarantees their safety in the top division for another year but yeah Real Madrid only need a point now to confirm the title I think just wanted to ask what, what you sort of made of the race in Spain this year. Was it Real Madrid being outstanding was, or was it just Barcelona, Atletico, the usual, not really putting up much of a fight? I think um, Real Madrid have been very consistent in general. That blip where I mean, people were talking about that, that game against Barcelona, obviously at home, you know, losing the Clasico in, in such a humiliating style. Um, it's not something you expect from a team which is about to to kind of canter home to the league title, essentially. So it's a little bit of a, an isolated incident there almost. But I think overall they've been, been very consistent under Ancelotti. I think he'll be delighted getting, you know, that, that incredible record of um, the only manager to win uh, a league title in the top five leagues in Europe, especially without like, really Bale and Hazard. I mean, 
the two most expensive players in that side essentially haven't really played a role this season. But the likes of Vinicius Jr., Rodrigo, they've really stepped up. Um, sort of younger players. Valverde has been excellent in midfield as well. Modric is still kind of there, being able to, to kind of pull off incredible moments of skill as well. And obviously Benzema up front in general has been been excellent this season. Um, so definitely deserve a champions. I think Barcelona in a bit of a transition spell. Obviously they kind of picked up a little bit um, after some of those January signings as well. But I mean, if you look at that squad's quality, it's not really there to kind of push really um, a side like Real Madrid at the moment. I think people got a little bit carried away with Barcelona. I think, for instance, their loss against Frankfurt shows how far they still have to go. You know, Frankfurt are a very decent side, but they're still, you know, a solid Europa League team. It shouldn't be a side that Barcelona are getting beaten by. But I think, you know, they're moving in the right direction potentially. But I think it was always going to be a, a incredibly tough transition after the Messi period. Whether Xavi's the man to guide them forward, I, I don't know. But I think it is good for them that they're having a little bit more of a focus on building a team and a squad rather than focusing on individuals, perhaps. I feel like they had a lot of dramas, um, obviously with Messi leaving and then the massive financial problems they had at the sort of start or pre-season. And to think they were going to come second, I don't think any of us would have thought that. I think we were expecting them to, you know, fall out of the Champions League spaces and, and have to struggle for a few years. But I'm, I'm pretty sure based on where they were, they'll be very happy to come second, even if it is to Real Madrid. But I was looking at their um, statistics and their top scorer is Memphis Depay and he's only scored 10 league goals and four of those were penalties. Uh, I think Aubameyang's pretty high up there. I think he might have nine goals, like you say, joined in January. Uh, but yeah, like you say, they don't have that quality, that cutting edge up front. They, you know, those statistics tell that story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very difficult for them to get that because I think more and more you're seeing that elite level kind of attacking players who can score 20, 30 goals a season. They're at a premium these days, I would say. Um, and they're not necessarily number nines anymore. You know, the players like, say, Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane. But they tend to congregate now at the big clubs will have sort of three or four of these players. And if you're left out in the cold a little bit, Barcelona have been perhaps made some, some poor decisions in terms of signing players like Dembele and Coutinho for really big money were meant to be those elite style players and just haven't come up for them. Then you're left in a position where it's very difficult to get back up to that level because you need somebody who can perhaps do that for you. Because I think the quality is there in midfield. Um, they've got Pedri and Gavi coming through. Frankie de Jong, you know, has been excellent this season as well. But it's that cutting edge up front where, I mean, Aubameyang's done well since coming in. But is he a player, you know, long-term, next two, three seasons, that you're going to look at getting 20, 30 goals a season out of? I'm not sure that's the case. So away from the league in Spain, we had the Copa del Rey final uh, at the weekend. Um, we covered the two previous Copa del Rey finals, which were in it within about two weeks of each other last summer. <laughs> the 2020 final having to be pushed back about 350 days uh, to 2021. And then... Uh, who who won that? Was that Sociedad that won that? And I think they they were they only held on to it for two weeks before uh, Barcelona beat uh, Athletic Bilbao in the final of twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's like the shortest reign you can have. But yeah, there were, there were two finals last summer. Um, but yeah, we've now had the twenty twenty two final. This was between Real Betis and Valencia. 
Yeah, it finished one one with Betis winning five four on penalties. Uh, there's there's a few stories to come out of this. Uh, of course, Joaquin is in his final farewell season. He's only a couple of months away from his 41st birthday. An absolute legend at Betis. He, he played there a lot uh, before he's moved to Valencia in 2006, I want to say. Uh, he's been back there a little while now after leaving Fiorentina. Racked up a load of appearances. He was part of the Betis team that won the Copa del Rey the last time they won it in 2005. Um, I'm sure you've seen this because you're terminally online like I am, but the photo of him celebrating the his last couple del Rey with Valencia in the changing room. Um, he's he's very naked, uh, and he's actually recreated that photo from this weekend as well. So that that was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, we're all blessed with that presence. I think there was quite an interesting statistic about Pellegrini as well, which was um, in relation to him wearing a tracksuit this season, as compared to not wearing a tracksuit. And apparently his win percentage is a lot higher this season when he wore a tracksuit. So he's probably wise to wear one for the final. Yeah, it, I think I saw that. I think it was like, is it in the 60s or 70% or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, the lucky charm, clearly. <laughs> but that is, I mean, they've got some nice kits and nice tracksuits as well this year. Like, I think it was either this season or the one before they've tried to sort of recreate what they had in the 90s. And I've seen Hector Bellerin wearing a lot mm -hmm. of it. And yeah, he, I, mean, I mean, he has dripped that guy. I'm sure Arsenal fans be a bit jealous. I'm sure as an Arsenal player, you know, Bayern used to winning the domestic cup competition, but um, Arsenal missing out this season. Yeah, I think he he put the ball in for the the Betis opener as well. So he's still got he's still got the quality. But yeah, I did I did see on Twitter today there was um, lots of people digging up Arsenal posts from when he left, saying that Bellerin was leaving Arsenal to win trophies, <laughs> and you know now he's now he's vindicated. I'm quite happy for the lad. He was always he always seemed quite a good guy, and he I think I remember was it the 2019 election he was he came out for Corbyn and all that, so I'm, I'm pleased for him. But also about Pellegrini, that was his first trophy since the 2015 2016 League Cup that he won with Man City. So yeah, uh, happy for him as well. Yeah, and I mean great celebrations for the Betis fans as well. I mean I think they're up till 3 a.m. at least in the streets uh, of Sevilla. Yeah, it's a really nice moment for them. I think definitely one of the, necessarily, I guess, these days, working class, that distinction is hard to say in terms of football clubs. It's certainly a very committed fan base You know, that's been around for a long time, very passionate, very large. Um, I really get behind their team. And, you know, I think it's a really nice moment for them to be out celebrating, you know, a fairly rare major tournament for them. But, yeah, definitely very nice to see those scenes. Ante, ante, prende la palla. Ante, ante. Aspetta, crossare ante, palla lì in area. Ibra di testa, Tonali. Gol! Sandro! Meritato! Sandro! Gol! Gol! Gol meritato in altri tifosi! Sandro! Sandro! Con la punta santa del piede! Sandro! Okay, moving over from Spain now to look at what's going on in Italy and Syria. We've got an amazing title race there. Uh, one of the probably the best one in Europe this season. There was a long time that four or five teams were involved. Uh, at the weekend, it went from three teams challenging to two. The teams you've got up there are uh, were Napoli, Inter, and then AC Milan at the top. Napoli absolutely self-destructed. They they were facing uh, Empoli away at Empoli, and Empoli hadn't won a game in seventeen. 
the last victory had actually come against Napoli in Naples. Uh, but yeah, that was back in December. It, it, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have foreseen um, Napoli dropping points here, especially after they went two 0 up with a goal either side of half time. But then somehow the last ten minutes of the game, uh, they first conceded to ex Celtic midfielder Liam Henderson, and then a brace from uh, Pinamonti uh, managed to seal a win for Empoli. Uh, Pinamonti on loan from Inter Milan as well, so doing his parent club a favour. He might find himself uh, uh, playing regularly at the San Siro next season. So with that result, it sort of casts Napoli aside from the title race, leaving just the two Milan clubs. Inter overcame Roma at the weekend. This was a massive game. Uh, it ended Roma's 10-game unbeaten run. They're in really good form at the minute. They beat uh, AC Milan in the Coppa Italia last week 3-0. This game was kind of interesting because obviously Roma's manager now is Jose Mourinho. Uh, he was the man that brought the treble to Inter back in 2010. And he was uh, the uh, Inter fans were actually chanting his name with about 20 minutes to go. Once this game was all wrapped up, they were like quite happy to do that. Um, I think you've, you've struggled to find too many ex-clubs of Mourinho that would sing his name nowadays. But uh, yeah, the Inter fans were doing it. So with that win, it put them top at the table of the table by one point, meaning that the last game on Sunday night, uh, AC Milan had to win if they wanted to get back to the top. They went behind after four minutes to a Chiro Immobile goal. Uh, then at the start of the second half, Olivier Giroud managed to get them back level. And then with a last gasp winner from uh, Sandro Tonali, AC Milan managed to win 2-1, putting them top by two points. Uh, this Tonali kid, if you've played football manager, as we both have, you'd know he's uh, he's one of the best, any. Yeah, very highly rated. I think Pinamonti um, recently has been a bit of a wonder kid on football manager as well. Um, interesting, actually, to have Empoli Napoli as a bit of a Maurizio Sarri derby. Mm, yeah. Um, Sarri kind of essentially, you know, kicked off his, his managerial career to, to a degree at Empoli and then you know, achieved fame at Napoli. Um, so interesting to see that it's kind of a decisive result. I think, you know, as you're saying, Empoli doing the double over, um, over Napoli this season to perhaps the dent in their title hopes. Yeah, I mean, I guess the Inter Rome result also had me thinking of, of almost shades of, of Rafa Benitez. He was at Everton and a Liverpool fans kind of singing his name up a couple of goals against Everton. But yeah, I think obviously a really interesting kind of title race going down to the wire now. Um, and we'll see, you know, who's able to kind of pull that off. Um, I guess it's almost reminiscent of a, of a bygone age where it was really the Milan clubs who were pushing and yeah, you know, I, I think in probably the early to mid two thousands, you had some incredible players lining up for both sides. You know, like Kaká, Inzaghi, Seidorf, Adriano, Zanetti. Wonder if it'll be a re return to Milan dominance after you know, so many years of Juve being really the top team there. But yeah, I think definitely both sides kind of well placed to, to progress after this as well. Um, I guess the issue could be financially whether they're able to sustain this, and perhaps you know might be fearing losing some of their best players. To clubs around Europe, um, I think you know if you think of Inter with Lukaku, obviously they managed to kind of go on quite well without him. Adding Edin Dzeko, who's been quite good this season, but he's sort of a short-term option for them really. Um, you see what they see, what they do going forward. Perhaps it is Pinamonti 
or perhaps you know they look at other options in terms of that striking department as well. Obviously, they still have Lautaro Martinez, um, but he perhaps could be slated for a move as well. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, while not watching Syria religiously this year, I feel like we've got we got a bit, uh, quite a good look at both Milan clubs through them playing Liverpool in the Champions League this year, and I think I would say that Inter definitely looked the sort of more more competent outfit than than uh, AC Milan did. And while AC are top right now by two points, Inter have got a game in hand, and all of Inter's opponents remaining are from the bottom half while of the table, while all of Milan's opponents are in the top half. So I think you would say that Inter are, are probably the favourites. But yeah, I would, I'd have to agree with you. Like, I, I really like seeing those two back up there. You, you sort of get sick and tired of, of the same team winning it. And as you see in Germany with Bayern doing it 10 years in a row, I know that these are historical, massive, massive clubs, Inter and Milan. But yeah, it's that bit of nostalgia for me. It's, it's how like I think the Serie A table should look. So, yeah, we'll move on now to look at the article from Jonathan Wilson that was in The Guardian. It was titled, By Stealth Rather Than One In One Swoop, The European Super League Has Arrived. So, yeah, this pretty much sets out how the, the anguish and the furore over the European Super League was misplaced, as we've already sort of found ourselves there. He talks about how the semi-finals uh, the, for the last 20 years, 62.5% of semi-finalists have come from England or Spain. That's 26 from Spain, 24 from England, one from Portugal, two from the Netherlands, and the rest from Germany, France, and Italy. It's sort of showing that you know it's not that diverse group of teams. We've got Real, obviously, in the semis this this time, um, which you know they're the underdog there. They're the exciting proposition but do you sort of do you see what he's saying like do you think like this is this is bad for football or is this just how it's sort of it's been like this all of our lifetime so we can't really compare it with anything can we yeah absolutely i think it's england and spain in particular probably i guess after that period that i just kind of discussed the um sort of early to mid 2000s where Serie A was still in a position probably to challenge a bit more and sort of you could say it was sort of top three um, I would say now it's kind of swung decisively towards being essentially the top two leagues. I think if you'd look at probably the Europa League semi-finals um, over kind of that similar period, I think you'd probably see a similar trend as well. And if you think of Europa League winners recently, I mean Sevilla obviously stands to mind as as kind of the Spanish representative who picked up quite a few Europa Leagues in that period as well. But I think it is definitely kind of endemic. Essentially, that's where the money is. The best players are going to go there all the TV attention and money is going to be there as well. So it's very difficult for other leagues to get a look in. And obviously, if you see, you know, instances where a team has broken through that little bit, whether it's, say, Ajax, you know, some of the Portuguese sides, they tend to find that, you know, either that summer or shortly thereafter, they'll find their best players being being poached, being courted by you know, these the super clubs, essentially just kind of entrenching their wealth and trenching the status more and more every year. Um, and I think as, as he goes into in the article, and also we can discuss a bit more, it's not enough for them. They, they still want more. They always want more and they'll never really be satisfied until it's a close shot for them, whether that comes through a Super League or it just comes through a further entrenchment of the Champions League where you know it's essentially functionally the same as the Super League, uh, even if it's not 
essentially packeted, sort of packaged or, or marketed as such. It's just you don't know where it will end, really. I mean, like, like we every there was plenty of fans that came out and, and it, it was that met with absolute derision this European Super League uh, last year. But we just it really is it is obviously going that way if it hasn't already, as uh, Jonathan Wilson said. And what I didn't realize was uh, this deal that he spoke about from August 2016, where they signed in that from 2018 onwards, 30% of broadcast revenues from the Champions League were to be distributed to the 32 sides in the group stage based on performances in UEFA competition over the last 10 years. Talk about uh, prior performance and club reputation, and it, it, it all sort of boils down to the fact that these clubs have been gaining from their historical record since, you know, since 2018. Like, this isn't a new thing. Sure, like, maybe in the close future, they'll be able to qualify based on prior performance, but they've already been earning massive, massive amounts of money based on that. And then he goes on to say that if West Ham qualify for the Champions League next year by winning this season's Europa League, they will get 4% of what Chelsea get. I mean, that, that's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's, it's essentially the case now. I mean, look, to a degree, this is an extension of kind of existing trends, even going back to probably say, the start of football, commercialization of football, where, you know, if you have a bigger fan base, you fill a bigger stadium, going to make more money, going to be a bigger team. You know, obviously, any, anyone can understand that in principle. I guess the, the real issue now is it's a case of magnitude because you've got teams where we're not talking about, you know, what fan base can fill a stadium. It's about how many tens or hundreds of millions of fans you have across the world, which can be marketed to. If you can market products to these people, the advertisers want to get on board. Champions League, you know, UEFA want to, to sell TV rights to companies who want to then, you know, obviously package these, these commercial products to, to these people across the world. And, you know, that's, that's an inevitable legacy in the sense of football being a globalised sport and, you know, being by far the largest sport in the world, being the most commercial sport packaged all around the world. However, the issue is without any regulation of it, you get this entrenchment of power, you get these top teams naturally as a result of their success and having these fan bases being in a position to dictate terms to the governing authorities who are perfectly happy to let them do that because it also means more money for them as long as they don't then set up their own breakaway league and decide oh, we're going to keep all of the money for ourselves instead of just 30% or 50% whatever it might be so that's the only issue that UEFA has with it I mean it's not a moral issue that they have with the Super League is that where's our cut that is the progression and the trend, and I think you know, UEFA weren't happy to let it happen as long as it didn't give the clubs too much power over them. But perhaps now the balance is tipped so much that they're almost powerless to control almost the beast that they created themselves with this marketing of the Champions League uh, and wanting that to be that collection of the best teams. They've almost created a situation where it's going out of their own control, and that's kind of leading to essentially almost inevitability at this stage that will be some kind of Super League, whether it is, you know, actually the initial concept or it's basically a, a degradation of the Champions League towards that. That's exactly where it seems to be heading, isn't it, with this uh, Swiss model, UEFA Swiss model uh, to be coming in from, uh, I think, is it 2024 or 2025? Mm. Um, yeah, like, uh, it seems that they're going to get what they wanted all along. Uh, but... Yeah, I was just shocked that this this has been going on 
this has been going on long before it was ever mooted last summer. It means that I think for clubs like, you know, you've got clubs like Manchester United in England who they've been, for want of a better term, really, a bit of a laughing stock in terms of the money they've spent, uh, in terms of what they've achieved recently. Um, but I know this sounds really naive and I know it is stupid to ever think that, but they will never, ever be punished for, for being bad. You know what I mean? They'll never, they'll never sort of um, suffer for it. Like, even as we were talking about Barcelona earlier, like for the trouble they found themselves in, like you almost, I, I think personally, you want them to suffer. You want them to struggle. Like you don't, you think for them to finish this season coming second, it's like, well, what was the point of it all? Like when you, you actually have clubs that, that go to the wall, as we've seen in Bury and, and potentially what's going, been going on at Oldham for the last however long. The big clubs, because they're just so big, they can't really f- fail, can they? Yeah, it's, it is that too big to fail concept. I mean, I guess you can draw, you know, it's, it's an easy comparison in the sense to the, the financial crisis or any kind of, um, you know, in relation to the, to the financial institutions who, who sort of cause a mess. Um, again, they're not going to be punished um, because they're too big. If you were to take that kind of route or to go down that road, say, for instance, you know, you were kind of to impose regulations that would let um, Man United essentially face much greater barriers to getting to the Champions League, then you would see a drop-off would be an interest from those fans. You'd see kind of less interest. You'd see less controversy and drama because people, you know, still want Man United around in, in those in those higher echelons, even if it's just to kind of laugh at them or, or sort of post memes about them on Twitter or whatever it might be. So the interest is, it's, you know, all the incentives are there for the governing authorities to want to maintain those big clubs with the biggest fan bases in those high positions. And so it just becomes a case where if the sport wants to keep growing, um, and it seems that you know, the logic of, I'd say almost all aspects of, of capitalism, certainly kind of football in this instance as well, is it's always got to keep growing. The TV deals always get, got to get bigger. We get more fans involved. The commercial deals have to be larger. It's all kind of inflation leading to this point. Um, and so if it's always got to grow, then there's absolutely no incentive. In fact, quite the opposite for them to, to try to make it more competitive or make it, I guess, as we might see it, fairer to other clubs because it's just not going to lead to that in, in a commercial direction. And, you know, I think that's why you've seen so much angst about it. And I think, you know, that the outpouring against the Super League was a reflection of, of the real way that many people feel, but even if they can't articulate it um, in, in a proper sense necessarily, it is that frustration with the way things are going. However, I guess the problem was it was directed against this very specific element, which is only really perhaps, you know, they were taking a step too far at the wrong time. They were, you know, jumping two steps when now they're going up again by one step and one step, people don't notice it. When you go up and make that step too far, they're going to pull back a little bit, but they're going to try again in the sense that, you know, once they push it a bit further, you're saying with that 2024 rule coming in, you're just going to go that way anyway. You just take a bit more time and people just ease into it a little bit more. But, you know, the same outcome will essentially happen. I do think it must be hard to feel that connection with um, the, the top teams. You know, as they get bigger and bigger and bigger and further away from reality, it must be it must be hard to sort of still see them as a personal thing because you know football is different from business from other businesses. It, it it holds a certain weight, 
Um, and I think with Newcastle, you know, being bought by Saudi Arabia, I, I think this is a club with a lot of passionate, very local people. And I don't know, I just think if, if they, whenever they do get to the Champions League, as I'm sure they will, um, whatever form the Champions League's in at that point, I don't know, it just, it, it won't really be football, if you know what I mean. I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to feel that stronger, strong attachment to it. I think that's true. I think certainly from my side, I think obviously I would still kind of count myself as a Liverpool supporter, certainly. I think it's undoubtedly the case that some of the passion isn't probably there anymore. And maybe some of that's just the loss of sort of a sense of younger, for instance, childlike innocence to a degree. Um, you know, when most people start out supporting football teams, you know, you're completely unaware of the background stuff. All you care about is your favourite players. You know, the goals they're scoring. To some degree, you've got to come to terms with it either way, whether you know you support, say, a lower league side or or um, a Champions League side. Um, but yeah, as, as you highlight, I think more and more the amount of money that's coming in, the sources it's coming from, it's very difficult to maintain that idea of a club as having that root in the community, that basis. It's just not really there anymore. And I think that's where you see probably more and more people gravitating to non-league clubs and some of these smaller clubs, community clubs, cooperative clubs. Hopefully that's a trend that can kind of keep going a little bit as well. But certainly, you know, it's difficult because the, the reach of it is so is so vast. And I think the football, in, in a sense, is better than ever. That's part of it as well. I mean, the quality is incredibly high. The standards are very high when you look at these top clubs in the Champions League when the Premier League. So in terms of a product, I mean, in the sense that they've got it right. Um, whether that severs a connection in the process um, is another thing. So it's almost balancing out is football an entertainment product, which in, in that case is doing brilliantly, amazingly, or is it about community clubs rooted in, you know, in the towns and cities where they come from, um, to delivering something back and providing that sense of camaraderie in that wider community? In which case, definitely you know, from a Premier League or larger sides, they're failing to kind of provide that for all their communities. Right, after all that Champions League bashing, uh, we better have a quick look at the semi-finals we've got this week. And you are right, there is uh, no doubt about how good the game is going to be, especially the Tuesday night game, uh, Manchester City at home to Real Madrid. Could you give me a prediction for that one? I guess it's sort of hope versus prediction. Um, I'm no fan of Real Madrid. <laughs> they, they turn Man City over. Uh, I do think Manchester City will miss uh, Cancelo and Walker being out. Uh, so we'll see, see what they do at, at the right-back position, actually. I mean, the team is out as we are recording here. I'll have a quick look and see... So what it looks Guardiola yeah. has chosen to do. I think John Stones at right back from the looks of yeah, things. Yeah, John Stones. But I think you know might struggle a little bit. I mean, Real Madrid do have pace in those wide areas. You have the legs of Vinicius and Rodrigo who can really get out players on those flanks. So I think that could cause them some issues. So I think Real Madrid will actually manage to pull this one off uh, in terms of getting a result. I don't think they'll win. But I think they'll be very happy with say a two-two draw. It's going to be my prediction for for the game at the Etihad. 
okay of course by the time i've edited this and posted it it will one way or the other make Luis look very silly so take that one with a pinch of salt but tomorrow night is liverpool versus Villarreal. what do you reckon is going to happen in this one i think they're a, a very organized side uh, really well trolled by by Unai emery uh, despite some of the scoring he got while he was in england um i think he does definitely know what he's doing at least in regards to cup competition like this um, I think, you know, they'll look to stifle Liverpool to a certain degree. They do, they do have an attacking threat, but I think in general they will look to hit Liverpool on the counter. Um, so I think it'll be a narrow and frustrating uh, Liverpool win, I think perhaps a 1-0. Um, I don't think Liverpool are going to blow Villarreal away at all. Emery's done wonders with that team of uh, Spurs rejects. Get, getting into the, I don't know if you remember, but uh, 2006 semi-final in which they got to and Raquel May had a chance to win it against Arsenal but yeah. missed, missed the penalty uh, that was that was absolutely gutting so if I could have Villarreal in the final I'd be uh, buzzing about that okay uh, that's we'll call it a day there uh, thank you for coming on it's been really good chatting with you again oh yeah absolutely loved it um, great to be back yeah we'll, uh, we'll have to be doing this a bit more Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you soon.